conversation about legal issues that matter to you. Understanding the culture tells you something about how the society develops its understanding of law. It seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Pam, we were thinking about the impeachment uh, trial, and uh, I think you're roughly aware of that. I've followed it. Uh, And what we were thinking about is the, the phrase, of course, is high crimes and misdemeanors, and there's a little bit more verbiage in the Constitution on that. What if we really thought of this like a criminal trial? What would it look like, and what would its outcome be? And in what ways is impeachment like a criminal trial versus in what ways is it not like a criminal trial? I mean, Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution says that the Senate shall have the sole power to try impeachments, but it doesn't talk really quite quite in, in any real detail about what that means to try an impeachment as opposed to other kinds of things that we're used to talking about trying, trying cases or like. And there's no one better really to talk about criminal trials and their relationship to impeachment trials uh, than our colleague David Sklansky, who's the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law, co-director of the Stanford Criminal Justice Center, and a former federal prosecutor uh, who's tried cases to juries that involve uh, public officials. So welcome, David, to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. And welcome back to the show. Thanks. We it's know great you're to be here a again. Yes. Repeat guest. Yes. So um, I, I guess the place to start is to say when we talk about the senators trying an impeachment, what do we mean by that? Well, we know that the Constitution envisions something that's quasi judicial. Uh, the, the language of the Constitution calls for a trial. The language of the Constitution makes clear that uh, the impeachment itself is just a charge. So it's modeled in some way on a trial, but it's obviously different in significant respects from a criminal trial. For one thing, uh, instead of having jurors who um, are selected from the community and are not supposed to bring knowledge of the case to the proceeding with them, the jurors in this case will be the 50 United States senators. So that's obviously a difference. And we know historically that uh, impeachment has always been a quasi-judicial, quasi-political proceeding um, because the standards in the Constitution are somewhat open-ended. And each time uh, the question of a presidential impeachment has arisen, Congress has had to do some thinking about what it believes high crimes and misdemeanors should mean and how it thinks a fair proceeding Um, should be handled both uh, at the charging stage in the House and at the adjudicatory stage in the Senate. Yeah, and one other thing we should just say is that the Chief Justice is going to come over and preside over this trial in the Senate. And uh, that's really the only time that a member of the judiciary has a role inside of Congress. That's correct. And it's one of the few things about the process that's dictated by the text of the Constitution. Yeah, so you kind of identified two big buckets of questions that might be asked about the ways in which a criminal trial is, a criminal proceeding is similar to or different from an impeachment. One is what you can be charged with. 
Uh, and the other is how we're going to determine whether those charges are true or false. Do you want to kind of divide those out? Sure. So let me take start with the, uh, the second one. Um, because the Constitution says that the House has the sole power to impeach and the Senate has the sole power to try, and the trial will be presided over by a judicial officer, the Chief Justice of the United States, it's pretty clear that the Constitution envisions something that is at least loosely modeled on a criminal proceeding, which is to say that there are two stages. There's a stage during which an investigation is held and then somebody, in this case is the House of Representatives, makes a decision about whether there's sufficient grounds to move forward. Um, and in the context of a criminal trial, that decision making would be either um, within um, a grand jury or within a prosecutor's office. And it would be secret. Yes. In fact, um, well, proceedings in front of a grand jury are, are secret by law. Uh, the only people that are allowed into the grand jury room are the grand jurors, the witnesses, the court reporter, and a prosecutor who's assisting the grand jury. Um, proceedings inside a prosecutor's office are, are secret um, both by law and by custom. Um, you know, prosecutors don't um, allow the public in when um, they're meeting with law enforcement agents or when they're deliberating about whether to seek an indictment in a case. So uh, the investigatory and, and charging stage of criminal cases is always held behind behind closed doors, even either inside a prosecutor's office or inside uh, a grand jury room. And, and when prosecutors are deciding whether to bring charges or not, um, can they rely on hearsay? Oh, sure, yeah. And... Um, there, uh, I'm glad you brought up hearsay because um, there are good analogies you can make to a criminal trial and bad analogies that you can make to a criminal trial. So one bad analogy is to think that since this is supposed to be at least a little judicial, um, we shouldn't be looking at hearsay evidence at any stage. And, and can you explain what hearsay is? Sure. Uh, hearsay uh, just means secondhand evidence. So when when you when somebody testifies about something they've heard from somebody else or something that they've read somewhere, they're giving hearsay. They're they're explaining. They're they're tell, they're relating information that they have secondhand. And the legal system restricts that, but it doesn't ban it. And in fact, it doesn't. Res it, it only restricts it at trial. In the investigatory stage, there are no restrictions at all on hearsay. At the trial stage, there are some. So today, this is Stanford Legal, and we're talking with our guest, David Sklansky, about impeachment and the relationship between impeachment uh, and criminal trials. Joe? So we have this analog. If we're making the analogy with the criminal trial and what goes on in the impeachment process, we look at the charging stage, which really looks a lot different. I mean, it's they might both rely on hearsay, but in the char one charging stage is before the country, and the other charging stage is before only the chargers, usually, or a grand jury that's sworn to secrecy. Uh, how about the next stage, the trial stage? So the trial stage um, looks um, in some ways more like what you, you would see in a criminal case, which is to say there's a body in front of which arguments are made. There's a judge presiding over that body. There are adjudicators, um, the jury in a criminal trial, the senators in an impeachment uh, trial. Um, and uh, typically there are witnesses who are called and testimony and evidence that's submitted. Um, it's a little different because the 
impeachment trials held in the Senate and the ultimate authority over what goes on in the Senate is the senators. Um, so it's in, in a criminal trial, the, the jurors, for example, don't vote on whether witnesses will be called. But th that is what has happened in the past in impeachment trials in the Senate. And it's what may happen if there's an impeachment trial in this case in front of the Senate. So at, at an impeachment trial, um, the House is theoretically the prosecutor. The House sends over managers who run the prosecution. And what rights does uh, an impeachment defendant have? Typically, the, uh, an impeachment defendant, that is to say the president, also has uh, lawyers who represent him. And in past impeachments, when President Clinton was impeached, when President Andrew Johnson was impeached, um, the president had uh, the right to call witnesses and submit testimony as well. And in fact, that happened in the case of Andrew Johnson. So it, it's, it resembles a criminal trial in that way, too, that um, there are two different sides, each with lawyers representing them. Each has uh, opportunities to call witnesses. And, and here, there's a there's a difference, I guess, because the juror, one of the lead jurors, if you will, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, who's the head of the, he's the majority leader in the Senate, announced that he's going to coordinate the trial with with the president's lawyers. Is yes, that and that that's something that uh, you don't see in a criminal trial. It would it would be cause for. Uh, getting new jurors. It, it would be a cause for excusing a juror from a criminal trial and not letting him serve if he announced that he didn't think that he could be impartial, a as uh, Senator McConnell has announced in this case. But yeah. we'd expect, I mean, we're all laughing in the room as you say that, because I think we expect in this case that the Constitution envisions in any, I would guess, impeachment that since it's a political branch, the president's probably going to have supporters that are going to be among the the effective jurors. The, yeah. We didn't have quite the kind of partisan world uh, uh, then maybe that we have now, but I imagine bias plays a different role in this. Oh, sure. I think that everybody has always understood that in an impeachment trial, you can't expect uh, the senators to be as impartial as we would expect jurors to be in a real criminal trial. On the other hand, I think everybody has also always expected that senators will at least try their best to be impartial. So it they're... they're I think there's a big difference between saying, look, let's be real, everybody has biases, and saying, I'm not even going to pretend to try to be impartial. I mean, one of the mm -hmm. questions is at the, at the kind of back end of an impeachment, uh, the, the Constitution says that what happens if the person who's being impeached, and it can be an executive branch official or a judge, is convicted, the sole punishment from that for that is removal from office and potentially being forbidden from ever uh, having another office under the United States. Um, but it's not in that sense like a criminal trial where you lose your liberty at the end of the day. That's correct. Um, the other thing that strikes me as different in, in, in an interesting way that we might want to 
think about is what the standard is for deciding whether to vote to convict or not. That is, in a criminal trial, a juror would be violating his or her oath if, despite evidence that the person, in fact, robbed the bank, they just felt sorry for them, and so they voted them not guilty. That's what's called jury nullification when a juror does it. And there's nothing that the prosecutor or the government can do about it. But jurors aren't supposed to do that. Is that the same rule, do you think, in in impeachment cases? No. The the uh, the historical understanding has been that the it, it, the senators take an oath um, the, as adjudicators before the trial, and they take an oath to be impartial and to return a verdict based on uh, on what they find. Now, it is true that. Um, Part of de- part of what the senators have to decide is what not just what happened as best they can tell, but also whether it's an impeachable offense, whether it amounts to a high crime or misdemeanor. So you could say that that's kind of like jury nullification because we don't tell jurors if you decide that what's been proven doesn't really warrant calling this person a criminal. Um, you should vote to acquit, although that is what they do when they nullify. We just don't tell them they can do it. it so there's a way in which, although senators take an oath to apply the Constitution, th- it is true that if a senator decides that, that what he or she has seen doesn't really justify removing the president from office, that's historically been considered it's been historically been considered consistent with the senator's oath to vote to acquit on the grounds that that uh, an impeachable offense hasn't been shown. So this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with David Sklansky about impeachment. And I want to come back to what you were just just saying a moment ago, which is the Constitution says that the president or other officers of the United States, which means other executive branch officials or uh, members of the judiciary, can be impeached for treason, and the Constitution defines what treason is, uh, for bribery or for other high crimes and misdemeanors. How do we figure out what those other high crimes and misdemeanors are? So in this, this is a, one of the many ways in which we're fortunate that there have been impeachment proceedings against presidents of different parties. And within the last half century, we've had an almost impeachment of President Nixon and an impeachment of President Clinton. So when there's something that seems to have been agreed to in both of those proceedings, that's pretty good precedent for us to follow. And one thing that was generally agreed upon by both sides and both of those proceedings is that high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't necessarily mean a crime that could be proven in a normal criminal court, and it doesn't mean only a crime that could be proven in a, in a normal in a criminal court. It means that it means a, a serious violation of the president's constitutional duties, uh, an abuse of power. One thing. We're going to go, uh, I think, explore that in more detail in a bit when we look at what President Trump is alleged to have done and whether it would fit bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. What is the standard of proof? And you've kind of talked about that obliquely in a regular trial beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, it seems like it, that's really an opposite here. It's, uh, and it's up to the Senate. The, the Constitution doesn't prescribe um, a standard of proof, and uh, the Supreme Court has never suggested that a particular standard of proof needs to be applied. Because you're not locking somebody up or depriving them of freedom, the beyond a reasonable doubt standard do- doesn't seem applicable. 
Right, because generally in, in a, just a regular civil case, we generally use what's called the preponderance of the evidence standard, which is if you were sitting there with a scale and the scale tipped even slightly towards the plaintiff, the plaintiff wins. If the scale doesn't tip slightly towards the plaintiff, then the defendant wins, um, as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt, which is really a very high standard. I mean, That's correct. you don't put a number on it, but people usually use numbers like 98%, 99% sure. It, it, beyond a reasonable doubt clearly means much more certain than just we think it's probably true, which is the standard that usually is used for all, virtually all uh, judicial proceedings that don't involve uh, a criminal conviction. Yeah, and taking somebody's yeah. liberty away. Joe? I wonder if this would be an appropriate time to start focusing on what happened and how you would see this as a prosecutor. To start with, what are the kind of offenses that you would see as a prosecutor? How would you work that into the constitutional language? So there are pretty clear uh, analogs uh, to the articles of impeachment here uh, in a criminal trial. So there, there are two articles of impeachment. The first one is abuse of power. Um, and uh, the second one is um, contempt of Congress. Contempt of Congress, refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas, is a crime that can be charged uh, against people, um, other, you know, against anyone who fails to comply with a congressional subpoena. Um, the abuse of power charge here does pertain to something that could be charged as a bribery count um, against um, somebody who did something like what the president is alleged to have done but wasn't the president of the United States. What he's alleged to have done is um, conditioned some official acts, namely meeting with the president of Ukraine um, and agreeing to provide uh, military assistance to Ukraine, conditioning those acts on a favor that he wanted uh, Ukraine to do for him, which was to investigate uh, his political rival, rival Joe Biden um, and Biden's son. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize one thing about that, and we'll obviously return to this uh, and talk about it more. But uh, there's a telephone call in which he says, uh, I'd like you to do us a favor. And the favor was actually not necessarily even to investigate Joe Biden and his son. It was to announce that the Ukrainians were going to investigate Joe Biden and his son. It's it's true that uh, there's a fair bit and there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that uh, what was most important to the president was a public announcement that uh, a, a criminal investigation was being conducted into Joe Biden and his son. We'll be back with more from David Sklansky talking about impeachment next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we talk about the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Joe? Hello, Pam, and hello again, David. David, right before the break, we were talking about what seems to be uh, uh, the crux of the case, or at least one of the key events, where the president says, in effect, uh, I'd like you to do something for us before we give you aid. And the prosecution here, if this were a criminal trial, would say, well, he's asking for a bribe, something that'll just help himself, that is, give me some dirt on the enemy so I can keep my job. 
what what's the best defense to that? Do you think? Well, if if I were if as a if as a prosecutor, I were thinking about bringing this case um, in a criminal court. If this was a criminal bribery case, and if um, it were against a governor, say, so we didn't have the issues about whether you could prosecute a sitting president. The def- what would seem to me the most plausible the defense, the defense I would want to give the most thought to, is um, a defense that there was no corrupt intent. Because bribery is only a crime with corrupt intent. And that means that if a public official is trying to advance the public ish- interest um, that and exerts some kind of commitment along those lines, that's not bribery because uh, there's no corrupt intent. And in fact, it, it has been suggested that perhaps President Trump did uh, make uh, a quid pro quo, did condition the aid and the Oval Office meeting, but he wasn't trying to advance his own personal interests. He was just trying to advance uh, the government interests of the United States in rooting out uh, corruption in Ukraine. And if, if that were true, if that's if that really were his, his intent, I think that would be a good defense to a criminal bribery charge, and I think it would also be a good offense, a good defense to an article of impeachment if it were true. So th- that brings up the question: putting on your prosecutor hat rather than your defense attorney hat, how would you go about responding to that defense if it were raised in a criminal case? So it's a governor who says, when uh, you know uh, a local official calls him up and says, "We just had a flood in town. Could you send?" the National Guard in to help us. And the governor says, look, I could send them in, but before I do that, I want you to do us a favor here, and I want you to dig up some dirt on my political opponent in the next election. How would you go about as a prosecutor showing that there was a corrupt intent rather than a permissible intent, given that you can't force the governor onto the stand, or in this case, the House managers can't force the president to testify under oath? Well, I would be eager to take that case because uh, the evidence in in this case is is stronger than any other public corruption case I can remember ever knowing about or being involved in or or reading about. Um, It's quite unusual to have uh, a transcript of the defendant saying, before you do before I do this for you, I want you to do us a favor, and then mentioning particular political opponents that he wants to have, uh, he wants to be have criminally investigated. Um, it is true that the president didn't say, and I'm interested in this for corrupt reasons, but. You never see that. The way you prove what somebody wanted to do is by what they said and by what they did and with circumstantial evidence. So um, it, it would it's grist for a trial, uh, what, what the president's motives were here. And in an ordinary criminal case, if uh, if a, a defense attorney said, a defense attorney would be free to say, this the president's intent really was just to advance the interest in rooting out uh, the uh, rooting out corruption in Ukraine. But um, as a prosecutor, you would ask the jury to use some common sense and to ask themselves, how likely is it 
that the president thought it just happened that the only corrupt activity in Ukraine had to do with Joe Biden and his son. What a remarkable coincidence. Just happens to be the person that he's afraid of running against in the next presidential election. And so you, that would be part of the evidence. It would be part of the evidence that his chief, that one of his chief aides went on national television and said, yes, there's a quid pro quo. Yes, it was political. Get over it. And the fact that uh, that aide, uh, the president's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, later walked back on that doesn't eliminate it. There's no rule that uh, if, if your spokesman later apologizes for admitting that you committed a crime, you, you, the, the jury can't be told about that. See, and by the way, that doesn't count as hearsay. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with David Sklansky about impeachment. Joe? But suppose I'm, I, I want to play devil's advocate. It's probably a bad way to, to put that in this partisan age. But if I'm the defense, I might say, Okay, it's unrealistic to think that President Trump tosses and turns all night thinking about corruption in the Ukraine in general. But he might think about corrupt U.S. officials and U.S. parties in the Ukraine. That's kind of bad news for this country. And the one that has come to his mind is going to be the most prominent guy out there that's in the Ukraine. It's uh, Joe Biden's kid. Sure. And then the question would be, is that just because uh, exercising objective judgment, he's concluded that this is the most extreme uh, 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 corruption in the United States and this is what needs to be prosecuted? Or does it, is it motivated by his own desire to succeed politically? And that, that would be, that's a question for the jury. Um, it's, it's not that different from the kinds of questions that juries often have to answer in public corruption cases. The, the main difference here is that I think the, the argument that the defendants, that the president's motives were pure is unusually weak. And it's, a, it, I mean, one thing to ask also, I guess, circumstantially is what has he done about other corrupt regimes around the world? Uh, you know, if he were a anti-corruption crusader, you might be more inclined to believe him here than if well, he's celebrated. Not um, just around the world. He had a second phone call with President Zelensky uh, uh, of Ukraine in which after which the, the White House readout said the president pushed Zelensky on uh, addressing corruption in Ukraine. In fact, when the transcript of that call was released, it revealed that the pr President Trump said nothing about corruption. So it, it, there, there, there's quite strong evidence that he, he wasn't concerned about corruption in Ukraine. He's not concerned about corruption more generally. He's not concerned about corruption in the United States. I mean, it, it, to, to believe that, um, but again, though, this, that's a factual question. And that, that, that is the kind of thing that um, if, the tr if the Senate wants to model this on a criminal trial, that's the kind of thing on which evidence will be presented, and then the senators can will have to decide whether they think the evidence shows that the president really was acting in the interest of the United States and not to advance his own narrow political interests. I don't. I mean, even if they listen to the evidence, I, I'm. I don't. You know, I, I'm not. I, I don't know what they would wind up deciding. It's a quasi uh, uh, political proceeding. What I can say is that if this were a criminal process trial, if we were arguing this in front of an impartial jury, um, you'd take your I, chances. I, I, yeah, I would be happy to have this case. I don't think that it's a, a case that any prosecutor's office in the country would hesitate bringing. 
we've been talking with David Skolansky and what this would look like, this being the impeachment trial, what it would look like if it were a criminal trial. And uh, I'm reminded of an old Doonesbury cartoon, uh, uh, which has a radio show and someone renders a verdict at the end of the radio show. We're not going to do it, but for those who are Doonesbury fans, perhaps you remember that cartoon. Thank you, David. So thank you to David, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.